أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا ونبينا أبي القاسم المصطفى محمد وعلى أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين واللعنة الدائم على أعدائهم أجمعين من الآن إلى قيام يوم الدين السلام عليكم dear brothers and sisters I hope everyone is doing well inshallah and welcome to another episode of our tafsir of Dua Kumail podcast in the previous episode, we reached this part of the du'a in which Ali ibn Abi Talib, first he asked for the forgiveness of his sins. He did it in a very urgent manner. He said, fi wa fi And after, you know, asking for the forgiveness of his sins, he moved on to the idea that now he wants all of the blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends down upon his servants, that a share of it is also allocated to him, right? And he went through these different blessings with different terminology. He sometimes he called it khayrin tunzilo, sometimes he called it ihsanin tufdilo, sometimes he called it birrin tanshiro, or rizqin tabsuto. And these are really, uh, if you think about it, these are, of course, the words themselves have different meanings that they carry, but essentially they're referring to the blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would send upon his servants. Having said that, we reach this line of the du'a in which we call out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala three times, Ya Rabbi, Ya Rabbi, Ya Rabbi. And I said in the previous episode that this uh, phrase, what you will find in the written format is Ya Rabb, but of course this has a kasra at the end of it, and there is a Ya that has been omitted from the word. So essentially the word is Ya Rabbi, which in Arabic would mean my Lord, right? And the reason why they do that is a grammatical rule that they have in Arabic. Nonetheless, we're calling out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We're calling Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala three times, my Lord. Okay, the point to be understood from this, and of course, the word Rab itself, although it's normally translated as Lord, you know, as a loose translation, it's okay to use that word. But in reality, to be precise, the word Rab does not mean Lord. Lord carries a different connotation to it. Um, the word Rab actually means the one who nurtures you. Right? The one who nourishes you, the one who watches after you every single day. Right? And that's why in the verses of the Quran, when we refer to our mother and father, we refer to them with the verb Rabbayani. So your mother and father are your Rabb in their own particular manner, in the sense they, they, that they nurtured you every single day. They protected you every single day. They gave you the water you need, the food that you need, the protection that you need, the shelter that you need, and so on and so forth. So when we call out Ya Rabbi, we're talking, we, you know, the, using the word Lord it may not be the best uh, translation. You're talking to the one who nurtures you, right? And the main difference between these two, you might say, well, what difference does it make if you translate Rabb as nurturer or you translate it as the Lord? The Lord has more of a magnificent connotation to it. There is more of a formidable feeling when you say the word Lord. And um, in some cases, it might even strike your heart with a little bit of fear because you're speaking to someone who's so great and so magnificent. Whereas the word Rab is more so a close feeling, right? It's more so a, a feeling of the one who has been so close to you and has been caring for you uh, for so long. Nonetheless, Ya Rabbi, Ya Rabbi, Ya Rabb. The point that we talked about is that a lot of times when this dua is recited, this phrase or these three phrases, they are repeated two more times. 
And essentially, instead of reciting Ya Rab two, uh, three times in total, you end up reciting it nine times. And this is done with other parts of Dua Kumail as well. Is this part of the recommendation? Is it part of the actual Dua? The answer is no. It's not part of the actual Dua. Uh, when you look at the actual Dua, the word Ya Rab is supposed to be recited three times. It's not supposed to be recited more than that. And if reciters do it, um, they might have their own reasons. You know, it's cultural, uh, essentially, cultural things that make its way into the du'a. And it's not a problem. It's not like it's going to make the du'a, you know, batil all of a sudden or like you can't you can't continue with the du'a. It's, it's nothing of that nature. However, we do have this point in our hadith. And when it comes to the du'as that we recite from the Ahlul Bayt, that we should try our best to just stick to what is part of the du'a and to not change the du'a um, you know, based on our own, uh, you know, the way we see fit. And it's interesting because we have hadith from the sixth Imam, in which a companion of, of his, um, or forgive me, the, the, sixth, uh, the sixth Imam, not the fifth Imam, a companion of his approached him and he said, you know, I sometimes I'm in situations where I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. And would you teach me a du'a that I can recite and that du'a can be a means of my, you know, my convenience. It can bring me faraj, can open up some doors to me. And the imam responded to him. He said, yes, you can recite this du'a. Ya Allah, ya Rahman, ya Rahim, ya muqallib al-qulub, thabbit qalbi ala deenik. Oh, the one who is Rahman and Rahim, the one who flips the hearts. He's in charge of what someone feels and what someone thinks. You keep me on the straight path. You keep me on your religion, right? Your sharia. Okay, now the companion says, and this companion, his name is Abdullah ibn Sanan, famous companion. And there's some talk about, you know, whether he believed in other schools of thought and not, and that's a separate discussion. He says, I recited the dua back to the sixth imam, but this time I recited like this. I said, okay, so I will recite it like this. Ya Allah, Ya Rahman, Ya Rahim, Ya Muqallib Al-Qulubi Wal-Absar, Thabbit Qalbi Ala Deenik. You see the dua of the imam said, Ya Muqallib Al-Qulubi Thabbit Qalbi Ala Deenik, right? He said, I recited it back and I said, I will recite like this. Ya Muqallib Al-Qulubi Wal-Absar, because you know, this term of Muqallib Al-Qulubi Wal-Absar is part of our, some of the other duas that we have as well. Right? And sometimes even when you're not paying attention, you will just go automatically with مُقَلِّبَ الْقُلُوبِ وَالْأَفْصَارِ So he says, I recited this back to the Imam in this manner. And the Imam said, no, stick to the way and recite the dua the way I did it. Even though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he is مُقَلِّبَ الْقُلُوبِ and أَفْصَارِ He is the one who is in charge of the hearts and the eyes and the insights of a human being. But you stick to... Allah, the one who is in charge of the flipping of the heart. You stick to that because that's the way I taught you to recite this dua. And what this teaches us, and scholars have more to say about this, of course. This is just a brief point I'm making, so we move on. What scholars have to say about this is that when these duas are narrated to us uh, from the imams, we are to try to stick to the way the dua has been uh, recommended for us. Because there, each dua alongside the idea that it is you know at the at its very core it's a way of asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for a particular hajat it also carries with it spiritual effects okay 
Now, there are those who will take this these spiritual effects and, you know, they will take it out of proportion, right? And they'll say, oh, you recite this draw, all of a sudden, you know, this sickness that you have will disappear and it, this will always work, for example. And so we have people who go to that extreme, of course. And these are, of course, cultural elements that have made their way into our religion, unfortunately. But the spiritual implications of a dua are naturally there. Do we know what those spiritual implications are all the time? No, we don't. A lot of times we may not know. A lot of times a dua might have a spiritual effect that might be hidden to us. And we just recite it because the imams have taught us to recite it. But the point is this, that when someone recites the dua and he makes changes in the dua, even though the meaning of the dua may not change very much, and you find in this line, in this dua, at the end of the day, you're asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to keep you on the straight path, for example. Okay, So it's not going to change the meaning of the dua so much. But because it comes out of that form, some of the spiritual effects that it has will be lost. Again, this is not to belittle the dua that is not done in that exact same form. No, the dua is done. If you remember the very first podcast, the very first episode that we have, we discussed the philosophy of performing dua and why is it that we perform dua and we mentioned a number of reasons I think in total we mentioned five different reasons the most important being building a relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so if someone changes the dua a little bit here or a little bit there the main purpose of the dua is going to remain however we do have this recommendation to stick to it but beyond this a bigger issue that comes up is that you will find these these changes that we bring to the du'as and to the a'mal and to religious rituals and sometimes the rituals that have to do with the Ahlul Bayt, for example. You will find that there are so many changes that are brought to these a'mal over the years that, for example, a certain amal that is done by hundreds of people, sometimes thousands of people, when you go and you look at the sources, the Islamic literature that we have, Sometimes you don't even find that amal as part of the sources. Now, where did this come from? It may have come from, you know, some cultural practice. But now because people have been practicing it for so long, they've been changing it, you know, at their own will for so long. Now it's just become this thing that, you know, you, you look at and you can't find any source for it. You cannot find any roots for it in the religious literature so this is something of course the yarabi that we repeat in dua kumail this is not it's not going to change your religion all of a sudden but as a general practice this is something that we have to be cognizant of right and i'll, I'll never forget you know sometimes when you go to different you know uh, communities you lecture they ask you to do the amal for a certain day what is very striking is that sometimes you go to one community from one ethnicity and the amal that they do there is nothing like the amal that's done in another community. And sometimes, like I said, the amal, you cannot even find it in the books. And I have examples of this of this type of practice in my mind right now. But, you know, for, for obvious reasons, I'm not going to explain. I'm not going to go into the examples, really. But the idea is that this is a practice that we need to stick to. That when we come across these amal, these acts of worship, we have to try to stick to the way that they have actually been prescribed. Otherwise, if we keep changing them, God knows what's going to happen five generations from now. And we already see the results of it right now because this was what, ha what was happening starting from five generations ago. So something to really uh, keep in mind that our imams have taught us that when we give you a dua, you stick to that dua and you recite it in the way 
that we taught you to recite the dua. Okay, moving forward. After that, he says, Ya ilahi wa sayyidi wa maulaya wa malika riqi. My Lord, my master, wa malika riqi, the one who owns my riq. Riq refers to the idea of, you know, in the English translations, you'll find the word bondage, okay? Um, and essentially refers to someone who is owned by someone else. So the concept of slavery um, within the within Islamic scholarly circles is referred to with the terminology of riq. Someone who is, uh, essentially he does not have authority uh, by himself and his authority lies in the hands of others. Now, this there's a couple points that we need to point out here. Um, first of all, uh, well, I'll mention what the two points are and then we'll start discussing them. Uh, the first point is, what is exactly meant when we use this word slavery? It's a topic that, of course, is a separate topic and would you know, require a whole separate talk. But what I will say is that we do have to touch on this just so that we understand when Islam speaks of slavery. As it relates to us and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what does it look like? And as it relates to slavery amongst human beings, what does it look like? Okay, so I'll discuss the second one before we go into the first one. The second one is this. When we talk about the concept of slavery, this terminology that we use, we say slaves, for example, or slavery, this is not really the most precise uh, terminology to use to speak of someone who had this role of an abd or a, an amah, as the verses of the Quran uh, use this terminology, okay? The reason why we I say that is because when you were use the word slavery, it, ha it comes with a whole bunch of connotations. And these connotations do not hold true in the way that Islam has asked us to deal with someone who works for you, okay? Now, of course, when I say works for you, this is not something we deal with today. It's something we used to deal with back in the day in the Muslim world. But, you know, even when it comes to back in the day, when you look back at it, uh, this whole idea of, of having servants, right? The way Islam came into the picture and set out rules and laws in the way that you will deal with a servant of yours, it's very, very different from what you find when you're talking about, quote unquote, a slave. Because when you use the word slave, the connotation, of course, is that you can do whatever you wish to this individual, right? And, and being from America, when you look at the history of America, that is on full display for anyone who's done, you know, read even a little bit of history uh, of what has happened here in the past 400 plus years. When it comes to Islam, however, that's not the way you deal with things, right? And one of the best ways to, to look at this really is the seerah of the Ahlul Bayt themselves that not only did they honor somebody who was of this status, who was a servant, who used to work in other people's houses, who had riq, as they say, they used to, if, if there was a woman, some, uh, there are times where an imam would marry this individual. So it was not a situation where this person was frowned upon. Yes, of course, the practice of Muslims, yes, Muslims have a lot of issues and they have a lot of flaws and they still do even today and they will continue to have their issues. But from an Islamic perspective, if someone was going to act upon the Islamic rulings, it was not that this person didn't hold any value. It's not that this person was not worth anything as a human being. These are connotations that we've picked up through the word or this terminology of slavery. And a very good example is of this is that if you look at a number of our imams, they married maids. And a number of our imams, they were born from maids. 
And these were women that were highly praised. If you look at the mother of, and this is just an example, the mother of Imam al-Jawad, for example, her name was Sabika, or some say her name was Khaizaran. She was a uh, Christian lady. She came from the region of Copt, right, which is, you know, northeastern Africa. And she was Christian. She essentially, in one of the battles, she came within the realm of Islam as a captive, and therefore she was a maid. And she converted to Islam, and she married Imam al-Rada, This is a lady that Imam al-Qadim, right, the grandfather of Imam al-Jawad, used to send his salam to before she was the wife of Imam al-Rada. Okay? This is a, just to put that into perspective, this is an Imam sending his salam to a lady that essentially this lady is not even married to his son yet, but he's sending his salam to honor her for her purity, right, for how holy she is and how uh, righteous she is. So this idea again, and of course this is a separate topic, you know, it's and there's books that have been written on this topic as well. But um, to, to put it very briefly, when we use the word slave, and this, I, this word slave comes up in Islamic literature, it is very different from the way we understand slaves, especially in the, you know, within the, uh, American history. So that's something to keep in mind. Ha moving beyond that, when it comes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, can we say we are a slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Oh, well, yes, you can say that. Because when it comes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we don't hold any rights. This is also a concept that might seem a little foreign to us. That, what do you mean? I mean, I thought I was a human being. I thought I have rights. You do have rights. When it comes to other human beings, you have rights. But when it comes to your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, no, you don't have any rights. You might say, well, what, like I'm a slave? I don't own anything? No, you don't own anything. That's exactly the point. We were born slaves. Now, the important point to keep in mind is this, that when we say we are to be slaves of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's not like we're living our life and then all of a sudden God shows up and he's going to enslave us, right? It's not like we're free and then he's going to enslave us. No, the fact that you exist, you got your existence from somewhere, right? You didn't just pop up into this world. You got your existence from somebody. The person who gives you your existence, is, you're owned by him. So the very fact that you exist means you are a slave. So it's not that we were free and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asked us to, you know, that came, showed up, you know, God forbid, and he was like, okay, now I'm going to enslave you guys. Now you guys have to do whatever I tell you to do. No, the very fact that you exist, you already are owned by him. You are already his slave. Therefore, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us to be his slave, to listen to him, to obey him, he is not asking us to go from being free to being a slave. He is asking us to start acting like we are a slave because we already are a slave. It's just asking us to realize and come to the acknowledgement that we are a slave of his and every everything that we have is owned by him, including our existence. Okay, so Ali ibn Abi Talib now because he wants to show his ultimate vulnerability with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He says, Ya Ilahi, wa Sayyidi wa Mawlaya wa Malika Riqi, the one who owns me. Right? The same way, uh, you know, back in the day, you'd see people would own individuals as slaves with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To the fullest degree, everything that I have, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala owns. Ya man biyadihi nasiyati. Oh, the one who my nasiya is in his hands. What is nasiya? Nasiya refers to the hair that grows near the forehead of someone. And in the English translations, 
you will find the word forelock. Okay, this refers to the hair that you find uh, that grows right in at you know at the front of someone's head near the forehead. This is a saying in Arabic, right? And it's not taken from Ali ibn Abi Talib. These are from the verses of the Quran that back in the day in the Arabic language when they wanted to say that someone has full control of another human being they would say he has grabbed him by his nasiyah he has grabbed him by the hair of his forehead right and if you think about it if you picture that it kind of comes it can kind of make a little bit more sense to you that if you grab someone from their hair then it's as if you have full authority over them so this is really a saying so when you translate it in a literal manner it may not make uh, much sense. Ya man biyadihi nasiyati, ya aliman bidurri wa maskanati, ya khabiran bifaqri wa faqati. Oh, the one who knows exactly how my misery is, how my affliction is. He's attracting the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by pointing out that he is miserable. Not miserable in the negative sense of it, miserable in the sense that he has nothing without Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ya khabiran bifaqri wa faqati. Oh, the one who knows of my poverty. Ya Rabbi, Ya Rabbi, Ya Rabbi. Inshallah, in the next episode, we will move on from As'aluka bihaqqa wa qudsik, in which Ali ibn Abi Talib starts to ask for three, four more requests. And each of these requests have some very beautiful points uh, that we will delve into, inshallah. Until the next episode, keep us in your du'as. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.